Father, as we come to the conclusion of our One Things sermon, we pray that one thing would remain with us at least from today and from the message that, that has led up to today. And that is, you are our all in all. We want to give everything we have for you, Lord, because you, you gave everything for us. Only a really great person is willing to give their life for a friend, but it's a savior who gives their life for an enemy. And while we were yet enemies of you, disobedient and wandering off in our own ways, you came and reached out to us with love, sending your son, our Lord and master, Jesus Christ, to die upon the tree of death, that the cross might become for us a tree of life, turning the grave into the ground of a glorious garden, turning the tomb into a womb of life, turning us from death to everlasting relationship with you. Lord, there is one thing that we worship today, and it is you, the one and only God of all creation. Open our minds and hearts to what you have to say to us today. Amen. It may seem strange to you that following a prayer like that, I want to tell you a story out of Greek mythology. But I have a purpose for it. Greek mythology, as you are more likely aware, deals with the gods and demigods and heroes and titans of the ancient mythological traditions of that region of the world, which itself was infused and inflected, influenced by the ancient Near East the uh, tales from Mesopotamia and the Assyrians and even from that region of Canaan and the Israelites themselves. We recognize the Greek mythology, which was a very real and organized religious expression in the era not only of its origins, but even after hundreds and hundreds of years of its observation during the Roman era in which the New Testament Bible was written. We also recognize that it was a practice of idolatry. And as such, I would by no means want to elevate it in any sense of suggesting that there is for us some point of devotion to it. However, when we focus on the scripture today, we're going to be looking at a letter written to a community that was fully engrossed in the Roman culture. And the Roman culture had rather fully adopted Greek mythology as part of its philosophical and sociological thinking. In other words, the Roman world was deeply influenced by the Greek myths, stories, and so forth. And in fact, the letter that is written taps into that awareness. You know, the reality is that the God of all truth is able to take some elements of every society and point to them and say, in this, there is something that refers back to me. I believe that when Paul wrote to the Romans and said that God is able to work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes, I believe that that sentiment was also reflected in Paul's commentary to the Athenian philosophers when he came to Athens as described in the book of Acts and stood on Mars Hill, the place where they talked and debated about philosophy and religion. And he said to them, you know, among your many gods, you have here an altar to the unknown God. I am here to speak to you about it was a recognition on Paul's part that even as he says to the Romans at the beginning of that letter, all of creation testifies to the reality of God. And therefore, even among all the disparate nations that were scattered over time, there is in each one of them some seeds of truth to be found. Are you with me? You're carrying along with me in this? I want to share with you a story that laid the groundwork for a tradition that became a symbol in the writing of Paul for how God is at work in our lives today. And it has to do with being victorious. In fact, not only victorious in athletic endeavors, but it has to do with traditions that rose up about those who were victorious in war, victorious warriors. And on a Veterans Day weekend, it seems like a good time to consider what God says is the true battle and what God says is the true victory. So let us look at this Greek story 
of Apollo and Daphne. In Greek mythology, Apollo was a god who was a patron over the athletic endeavors. He was a patron of athletes and sports. Sporting was very significant to the Greeks. They originated the Olympics, as you know. And you can see how even to this day, Greek thinking influences the, the, the world. This history is still there. Now, Apollo happened to be very adept, according to the Greek myths, with bow and arrow. He was a warrior as well as an athlete. And he saw another god that you may be familiar with, a god whom the Romans called Eros or Cupid. And though we see that god as a little baby, usually around February 14th, with, with uh, florid wings and a little tiny bow and arrow, in Greek mythology, he was a rather... Um, a domineering figure and he was rather proud of how capable he was with bow and arrow. In fact, in the Greek myths, one thing that often comes to us through these so-called gods is how vain and proud they tend to be. And so Apollo makes fun of Cupid or Eros, makes fun of the god of love because Apollo says, I'm basically better with a bow and arrow than you are. And so to get back at him, Cupid plays a little trick. He shoots Apollo with a golden arrow into his heart, filling Apollo with passion, with love, with love for Daphne, who is a river nymph. But Cupid shoots Daphne with an arrow of lead so that she dreads Apollo and flees away from him. Apollo chases after her. The racer turns into one who runs after one who runs away. And in all this running away, Daphne grows weary. Maybe Daphne would be able to subscribe to me too. <laughs> she knows what it is to be chased by an unreasonable man. <laughs> and so she finally pleads, give me rest from this race. And in that plea, she is turned into a tree. She's turned into the laurel tree. But Apollo still has love for her. Now she has become stationary, still as a tombstone. But Apollo, who has life and eternal youth within him, grants to the laurel tree to be evergreen. The laurel leaves are always green. You see them at Christmas time. In fact, the very tradition of a wreath of green at Christmas comes from this story. Not only does Apollo grant Daphne to be everlastingly alive and young, but he takes of her bow and makes that crown so that whoever is running a race and wins and lays hold of the gold, the gold of love receives the crown of life. Now you see where I'm going with this, don't you? That is why in the Olympic races, winners were crowned with a wreath of laurel leaves, which was a sign of life and fruitfulness that came as a reward for those who, because of their love for life, ran all the way to the finish line and ran so as to lay hold of what they loved. Likewise, generals and military victors would ride back into Rome wearing the laurel leaf that says, we overcame our enemies and we are alive. And they wore the crown of life, which was a crown of victory. So it was that in Roman culture, people immediately understood that a crown of leaves meant much more than just a tree limb. It meant life, it meant love, it meant victory. It meant reward. And it's that notion that the Apostle Paul appeals to in his letter to the Philippians. Now, I come back to remind you that not only are we looking at Philippians chapter 3 today, but we're also culminating this series. In fact, we're arriving at a finish line of our own, having run the race of 501s. I ran it in jeans. 501s, you're familiar with 501s most likely. We've been talking about it for five weeks now. It's that product of Levi Strauss and his associate, which was originated as a workhorse of the garment industry, something that working people could wear to get the job done, to reach their goal. But it became over time an emblem of youth and a thing of beauty, 
the height of the fashion industry. One thing I like about 501s in relationship to this series is they're a back-to-basics, tried-and-true kind of garment that have to be shrunk to fit. You've got to wash them and wear them in order for them to really take shape around you. But when you do that, they're ready to go in any season, in any situation, so to speak. I'm sure there's still places where you can't wear jeans, but you get what I mean. These are lessons we are learning that we can wear anywhere that will equip us for the work of the Lord, but also grace us in his beauty. And so we have looked at five places in the scripture where the scripture says there is one thing that can help focus us on Christ. Five of one things. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm focused on Christ. I'm focused on Christ. Hallelujah. I'm glad you are. In Psalm 27, verse 4, David says, even as he is going into battle, you remember that? That there are many things he might be worried about, many oppositions that he's facing. And his life is on the line. But he doesn't ask for victory in the battle. He doesn't ask that he would be preserved necessarily for injury or even from death. At least that's not the first thing. The one thing, the one thing he asks is for God, that I would dwell in your temple, that I would worship in your presence. He asks to know and love God, and he trusts that in that every other victory is secured. Jesus put it this way, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto you. In other words, like a runner in the race, press on to that finish line, seek the goal of that, and when you win that, everything else will be given to you. In that speaking contest that I was talking about, the point was to write and give a speech that would win the contest. But in winning the contest, you would receive a reward. And that reward would open doors of opportunity so that the funding I received became the undergirding for me to go on and learn and grow more. That too is what God is talking to us about. If you seek me, I'll fund everything you need. I'll enable you to grow in every way of grace that I have intended for you. One thing I ask, I ask for God. But in Mark chapter 10, one man who had lived his life asking to fulfill the things of God came to Jesus and said, Master, I've done everything that the scripture says since I was young. What do I need in order to cross that finish line into life and receive the crown of life? I'm putting it in the terms of today's discussion. And Jesus says, there's one thing you lack. And Jesus says it to him with love. Do you remember that? Looking at him with love. Jesus says, there's one thing you lack. This man being very rich is told by Jesus, sell everything you have, give the proceeds to the poor and come and follow me. The one thing that you and I can lack is trust to give away our treasure in order to invest our hearts in the hope of the Lord. If we are bound to what we own, we are owned by our possessions, possessed by our possessions. But Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want to invite you to consider something about the story of Apollo and Daphne that might not be immediately visible to us, that you and I are Daphne's. We had a heart of lead towards God. Every time he reached out to us, we ran away. But what we didn't realize was we were wearying and wearing ourselves out with all that running away until the only thing that remained for us was a dead tree, a tombstone. You know, trees used to be used not only for religious worship, but also often to mark the grave. But God has within his heart the golden glory of his undying love for us. So that even we like lost sheep gone astray, running away, are still the point and focus of his heart and his outreached hand. So he is saying, the things that you treasure are nothing more than leaden arrows that bring death. But if you will get rid of those things and give good to those who need and invest in God, you'll receive the heart of glory. You'll enjoy the golden treasure of God's love. Giving away our treasure 
is really about recognizing that our treasure is in God. One thing I ask is God. One thing I lack is giving everything for God. One thing I need, therefore, according to Jesus' word to Martha, the sister of Mary in Luke chapter 10, is to focus on Jesus first. Just like David facing the battle, just like the rich man facing a choice between his wealth or following Jesus, just like Mary who though she was expected to care for this party that was meeting in her home, she instead sat down at the feet of Jesus to listen. We are called to be people who say, I won't let anything come before God in my life. I'm going to put God first. Jesus said to Martha, who was running around so agitated and worried, Martha, Martha, there's only one thing you need. Mary has found it and it won't be taken away from her. There are many distractions But there's only one God, and I need to remember that in the way I live every day, every moment of every day. So I ask for God, but I lack trust in him. Giving away what I trust in other than him will help me invest in following him more closely. And one thing I need to do in following him is also be willing to wait upon him. When there's a flurry of activity around me, if Jesus is standing still and saying, listen to me, I need to sit down and listen to him. Not be driven by this idea that I have to accomplish all these other things, but rather be focused on the God who has accomplished everything for me. In doing this, I may not know everything that Jesus knows. I don't yet, do you? I love this word, but I don't know everything about it yet. In fact, if I spend all my life studying it, and I shall spend all my life studying it, I'll never come to the end of it. I'll come to the end of my life, but I'll never come to the end of the word. Oh, I've read the Bible through many, many times, but I haven't come to the bottom of it. You can go from border to the border of an ocean, but imagine if you could never get to the bottom. And that's the way this word is. A bottomless sea of riches. A glorious universe of life. And I don't know all of it, but there's one thing I do know. Like the man healed from blindness of birth in John chapter 9, I know that I once was blind, but now I see, and it's Jesus who gave me sight. I know that I once was dead in my trespasses, running away from him, but he laid hold of me and brought me into eternal life. I don't know how he did it. I know he died on the cross and rose again, but I don't know how he did that. I know it was the Holy Spirit in him, but I don't know how they did that, but I know him. I know him. One thing I ask for is him. One thing I lack, trusting him. One thing I need, putting him first. One thing I know, him. Him. Always Jesus. You see, it isn't a religious system that can save us. And You and I cannot run this race on our own. We cannot be fruitful trees without him. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 15. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you are not abiding in me, you're a fruitless branch. You're cut off and gathered together like dead wood burned in the fire. But if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. One way that I show who I know is to declare what God has done for me, to share what Jesus has done with me. I want to invite you to do this even right now. I'm looking at the clock. Do I really have time for this? Kind of not, but we're going to do it anyway. I'm going to time you. This is going to be a challenge. You need to find one other person and it can't be someone you came with because we're going to make partners of pairs. Now, if there's one or two places where you have to do three people, you can, but it's going to be hard on you, so you'd be much better to find just one other person. And I want you to take 60 seconds. I know that's crazy. 60 seconds and tell that person, how did Jesus find you? In other words, how did you come to know Jesus? If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, how did that happen? You're going to have to cut it down to the barest essential of your story because you're only going to have 60 seconds to tell it, okay? Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're with us as a guest today, no problem. We invite you and encourage you to start following him today. He's reaching out to you with a heart of golden love. But 
What you can share is, how did you come to be a part of the service today? How did you get here today? What brought you here today? Just share that. You've got 60 seconds. Now, when you're done, the person that you share with is going to share their story with you. So you've got two minutes to do this. If you can't move and you need somebody to come to you, just raise your hand and somebody can come to you. Make sure you do this now. I want everybody to do it. Don't anybody sit out. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds of buffer time if you need it. Okay, the clock is running. For anyone who might be streaming at home, you know, you can also engage in this activity. If there's somebody there with you, you guys can share with each other. Or if there's no one there with you, why not share with the Lord? He knows the story, but you can share with him what you remember about how he brought you to him. Or if you're not walking with him yet, what's brought you to viewing this service today or hearing this message? Consider that. Share it with him. Let the Lord speak to you also. There's a purpose he has that he wants to unveil to you, a purpose of life purpose in him. Okay, got about uh, 30 seconds left, person number one, or about 20 seconds left. Okay, person number two, share your story back if you haven't already. If both of you have already shared, you went too fast, that's okay, but talk with each other about what your stories mean to each other. Give a response to the other person about what their story means to you if you've already shared yours. Okay, you should be wrapping up now, and if you need to return to a seat, you can return to your seat. Why did I ask you to do this? First of all, I felt impressed by the Lord to say this is something that he wanted us to do today. And I think the reason or among the reasons that God wanted us to do this today is to remind us, first of all, of what he's done. Every time we gather, we gather in remembrance of him. When we partake of communion, as we did last week, we do that specifically in remembrance of him. But it's not just in remembrance of the things that he did in his earthly life on earth. Hallelujah for that. It is also in remembrance of the things that he's personally done for us in our lives. The other reason I asked us to do this, and I felt the Lord wanted us to do this, is to open up the communication with each other about these things. Because, you know, you can be uh, in the pocket of somebody for years and realize, oh, I've never heard their testimony, or I've forgotten that. 
And it's a great reminder of what God's done in other people's lives. I regularly participate in sitting on panels interviewing people for credentialing in our movement. We are our Foursquare Church. We're part of the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. And I'm privileged to be a part of those kinds of panels. And I served on panels like that in Culver City on Thursday. And every time I do that, I get to hear the life story of the people in those panels. Or when I coach someone, uh, I get to hear those stories. And it's always profoundly moving to me that I come away inspired. I come away reminded of not only how God has worked in my life, but also that God is doing things in the lives of other people that are just remarkable. Pastor Wilson and I had dinner together this week, and he shared a story that I'm going to ask him to share at some point in a, in a future gathering about how God used him during a funeral to bring an entire household to the Lord. And it was a situation. Yeah, praise the Lord. You know... You'll find that in the book of Philippians as well. Well, actually, I shouldn't say in the book of Philippians, but in the story of Philippi, because in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, when Paul first goes to Philippi, he's imprisoned there. And while he's in prison, he's worshiping the Lord. And there's an earthquake, and all the prison doors are open, but nobody leaves. Because Paul and Silas have maintained the integrity of the jail. Everyone has stayed in place. The jailer who was about to kill himself because he knew that if his entire jail was emptied out, his life would be called for. That jailer is so astonished by this demonstration of faith and grace on the part of Paul and the other believers that he immediately says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe and confess and you'll be saved. And right then, the Philippian jailer and his entire household confess their faith and are baptized and become believers. They are surely part of the group that Paul is writing to when he writes his letter to the Philippians that we're about to look at. Paul is writing that letter in jail again. Oh, that Paul. What kind of a guy must he have been to get arrested all the time? He got arrested for the Lord. Over and over again, Paul was arrested. The incident in Acts chapter 16, when Paul is first in Philippi, which was a major city, according to the book of Acts, in the uh, Roman region known as Macedonia, which is in northeastern uh, modern Greece. It was part of Greece at that time as well. was a, uh, a very Roman culture, even though it was in Macedonia, even though it was in Greece. And that is because, interestingly enough, and I made no connection uh, of this when, when I was looking at the preaching calendar. But it just so happens that Philippi was a place for veterans, for Roman veterans. In fact, Philippi, which had been colonized by Rome in the first century BC, in other words, before the birth of Christ, had been uh, appropriated as a place where military retirees would be granted land. So the military veterans that came there were not natives of the land. They were generally um, Roman in origin. They were Roman citizens by virtue of their military service, if not by birth. And they were landowners. So they became a wealthy class. Veterans don't come off so great in the story, I must say. <laughs> Although I'm sure there were good veterans as well then. But what we did see in Philippi was there was a distinct class, class division. Much of the wealth of Philippi was in the surrounding regions, the estates of the landowners, who were sort of like rancheros, you know. They had the land and they had the cattle and they had the Roman citizenship. But in the city itself, within the municipality of Philippi, there was an underclass of the people who were native to the region who were not Roman citizens. And therefore, they were... Um, they were servants in most cases. They worked in the households of these landowners. I think this is a story that people from the Philippines can relate to because there's an understanding about what it is to be in a uh, service-oriented community. And these were people like that. They were people who very often had citizenship issues. They didn't have a residency status or a citizenship status, even in the land where they were born because of the way that Roman citizenship worked. So in the letter to the Philippians, you'll notice several interesting things. Paul talks a lot about citizenship in heaven. Paul talks about the wealth and riches of heaven. Paul talks about victorious living, like the victory of a warrior in heaven. 
Not in heaven in the sense of some faraway place. That's a mistake. That misunderstands what we're talking about. He's talking about in the kingdom. And as Jesus said, the kingdom is at hand. However, the kingdom also has a promise that what we see today isn't the end. That we're on a race. And as we run that race, there is a victory out ahead. So in this process of looking at how we ask for and lack and need and know the Lord, there's one thing we ultimately come to. It's one thing that we do. And it's what, Philip, uh, it's what Paul is talking to the Philippians about in chapter 3. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind, forgetting what is past, I look ahead. It's where we conclude today. Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Do you hear that? That's one thing I ask, to know Christ. One thing I need, to put him first. To know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his suffering. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained this, Paul says. Or have already arrived at the finish line, arrived at my goal. No, I haven't yet. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, and we're going to read it together. Will you stand and we'll read these verses together from... Where you see that blue lettering, but one thing I do, we're going to read that together to the end of the screen. Are you ready? Together, aloud and loudly, please. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Heavenward there is literally upward. The upward call of Christ. Again, Paul is not just talking about some future point. He's talking about a higher way of living. Why would he say, I haven't obtained yet, unless there was some sense in him that this is something obtainable? This is not, to coin a word out of uh, um, Avatar, unobtainium. This is something that can be obtained. But it can only be obtained through and in Christ. If we alone were reliant upon our efforts to obtain it, we would be hopeless. But Christ has already obtained it for us. This, I think, is what Paul is getting at when he says, I want to lay hold of that for which Christ already laid hold of me. Why is it that Christ laid hold of Paul? How is it? Earlier in the letter to the Philippians, a wonderful letter, by the way, a letter full of joy written by a man in prison, a letter full of life written by a man who was likely facing a death sentence, although he likely did not die. This probably was written by Paul during his first Roman imprisonment, which you can read about at the end of the book of Acts, which would be about a decade after the time that he founded the church in Philippi. He founded the church during his second missionary trip around 50 A.D., his imprisonment in Rome in the book of Acts was likely somewhere in the early 60s AD. But he may be imprisoned somewhere else. There were many times that Paul was imprisoned. So it could have been written earlier than that or perhaps later. But it's several years since Paul originally founded the church in Philippi. And in that time, he's had opportunity to face persecutions and imprisonments over and over again. And he knows that they can relate to that story because... That's a story that, as we just talked about, was centered in his experience in Philippi. It's powerful when somebody who has no reason to rejoice is writing and saying, rejoice always. I'm going to say it again, rejoice, which is what Philippians 4 says. If you go through the book of Philippians, it's full of joy. It's full of some of the greatest passages that you and I as believers are familiar with. If you've ever written a letter to a fellow believer or sent them a message and said, I thank God every time I remember you, you're talking out of Philippians. If you talk about how you are, and I are called to think of others first and put others' needs before our own, to give away our treasure for the needs of others, well, you also are speaking out of the heart of Paul to the Philippians. If you talk about how Jesus, who was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but poured himself out for us, 
You're quoting from Philippians. If you talk about how you yourself are willing to pour your life out as a drink offering because Jesus poured his out for you, you also are speaking the way Paul spoke in Philippians chapter 2. If you talk about how we are called to pray without ceasing and give thanks in all things and trust in the Lord, making our requests known and allowing his peace to guard over our hearts, you're talking out of Philippians. If you put your focus on whatever is good and true and noble and pure and just and right, you're talking out of Philippians. If you confess that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, you are quoting out of Philippians. And all of these come out of the mouth of a man in chains who over and over and over again in the letter talks about his bonds and his burdens and his sufferings and he rejoices in them. Why? Because his treasure is Christ and no one can take that from him. But this is not a man who is sitting back and have you ever heard the phrase resting on your laurels? That comes from Apollo and Daphne. That comes from the laurel reef of victory. It comes from saying this. If you're an athlete and you won the last three races, who cares? You've got a race today. Don't just sit there on your posterior section, sitting on your crowns of glory, but get on to the racetrack and press forward for where you're going today. You say, well, I did that in the past. You know what? So what? Where are you going now? Now, we just shared what God did for us in the past, and that is glorious, and we don't want to forget that. But what Paul is also talking about in this book is people who are trying to go back to a legalistic way of living. They're trying to get non-Jewish believers to apply all the elements of the Jewish law, the dietary laws, circumcision. Paul is saying, I came from all of that. I'm not going back to that. It's not that there's anything wrong with that. It's that you can't win the race with that. But the one who wins the race is Christ. So let go of that stuff and lay hold of him. He's already laid hold of you. But there is a point to this. And the point is, you need to press on. We are saved by grace. No one can boast about the laurel leaf of life that God is going to give to you. But let me say this. If God, who says, by the way, as Paul says, speaks by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Philippians chapter 1, that he who has begun this good work in you will see it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, the one who who pulled the trigger on the shotgun that got you on the race, he's the one that will get you over the finish line. That one says you're going to win. Paul writes to the Romans and puts it this way, you're more than conquerors through him who died for you, right? So is there any way that you can lose that race if God says, I will give you the grace to win it? There's one way. If you don't run it. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, lots of people run in a race, but only one wins. So run to win. Now don't get confused. This is not to say, hey, everybody in the room, we're all running toward Christ, but only one of us is going to make it, so get out of the way. First of all, you can't win a race that way. You'll be disqualified. You want to be disqualified in the body of Christ? Do that. Philippians 4 talks about two ladies, lovely sisters, in this church. And Paul says, with all love, tell them to get along. Because you can't run this race running over each other. It's a relay race. We're a team. But Paul is saying this. There is something called of from you. In fact, the one thing that you and I lack may be here. The one thing we need is here. The one thing that David asks for is here. And that is you've got to want it. You've got to want me more than anything else, says the Lord. I already wanted you. You were the one running away from me, led in your heart like a bullet. You were dead. Gold in my heart like a God. I'm alive forevermore. I came and laid hold of you, but now you've got to hold on to me. 
You know, in the world, people will give up almost anything to obtain the goals that they want. When I was working in the entertainment industry, I saw people whose passion and drive was unparalleled. Those people had a focus on what they were after. And many of them I saw succeed because of that focus. In the business world, it's the same. There are people who can build empires because of their will to work to that end. In politics, in medicine, in academics. But I tell you, as worthy as any of those things may be under the hand of the Lord, if they are a substitute for Christ, There's not life in them. But Jesus said, if people of the world will work that way for the goals of the world, will not my people give all the more for the treasure of heaven? So forget all of that other stuff and seek him. Does that mean that we all become pastors? Does that mean that we all become monks or nuns? No. But we are all ministers. And we are all runners. In the entertainment industry, there's a position called runner, and it's lowly. It's a servant. That, by the way, is the word that Paul uses to describe himself, not only in Philippians, but again and again in his letters. And Peter does as well. And so does Jude. It was the terminology used for Moses. It was the terminology that was used for David. It was the terminology of the prophets. Servants of the Lord. And you know what those servants are? They are runners. When Paul says, I press on, he says, I run. In fact, dioko is the Greek term there. It's, it's the same root that we get deacons from. Deacons are servants. They are runners for the Lord. The Lord says, I need this. Go and get it. And they run and get it. In the entertainment industry, runner is a dog's body kind of person. Somebody powerful has runners. And they say, I need this. I need you to contact them. I need you to go there. Tell them I said this. That's what we are. We're runners. And Paul is saying, if you're going, I love you, Lord. I love you. And you're sitting there waiting for the day to arrive. Paul says, you're going to lose the race. Jesus puts it this way. Not everybody who says, I love you, love you, Lord, is my runner, but the people who go and do the will of the Father. Amen. That's what I'm looking for. Amen. You see, but, but when a runner does what they're asked to do, they don't come back and say, where's my bonus? They don't come back and say, where's my plaque? They'll lose their job very quickly that way. They've simply done what they were asked to do. Jesus put it this way. A servant doesn't expect to be praised for just doing what he is called to do. You've already been made a child in the household of God. So don't worry about being a servant because the servants are the inheritors, the heirs with him. But if you're not even willing to be a servant, then how can you be an heir? Because if you're not willing to press on to him for this race that we are running, how then can you have the victory that he has secured for you? If in him you run the race, you can do all things through Christ. If you try and run the race on your own, you can do nothing. If you sit back and don't run the race at all, the victory that he obtained for you is lost by your unwillingness to engage in the race. Now, I don't think such a thing can be lost, quite frankly. But I do know this. God made us free people. We can reject him. Or we can get bogged down with other constraints. And so we need to let go of those other things behind and press on to what's ahead. The one thing progresses three ways. Forgetting what is behind, pressing on to what is ahead, and laying hold of the crown of life. Get free of the past, and especially the sin that so easily entangles us. If your treasure is leading you away from Christ, get free of your treasure so that he can be your treasure. If your work and busyness is like Martha, distracting you from the focus of Mary on Jesus, then you, you be like Mary, the sister who attended to him. Let go of those other things and lay hold of him. If you are facing battles and you're overwhelmed by what the battles say, Put your focus on Jesus. If you had past failures and those things are weighing you down like a weight, let the sword of the Spirit come and cut that weight off of you. Stay focused on the future and the promise of life in Him 
and invest fully all you have and all you are into the kingdom of Christ. This is what Paul is saying. That's the one thing to do. We can't save ourselves. We don't need to. We've already been saved. But there's one thing we can do. Having been saved, we can press on to the life for which we were saved, the mission to which we are called, the purpose for which we were made. Of course, you can't do that unless you've received that call, unless you've heard it and responded to it. So that's where the race begins, but it's not where it ends. It begins with the story that you shared with each other about how God brought you to him, but it only begins there, and the race culminates in eternity. The writer of Hebrews conveys the same idea. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, do you realize that every believer that has ever lived who has crossed the finish line into eternity, according to the word of God, is cheering you on? And I'll tell you, the prayers of those saints, don't be afraid to call them saints. It comes from the scripture. It means holy ones. They are not holy on their own any more than you and I are holy on their own. And they are not holy alone. We are holy too in him. He sanctifies us. And they are cheering you on and they are watching with the hope that you and I will join in the family of faith. They're in the stands cheering us on. Billions of people over thousands of years. But most of all, the Lord himself empowering us. So throw off everything that hinders. It is so easy to get pulled down into sin. It's so easy. I know it and you know it. The Lord knows it. So don't let that get a hold of you. Whatever you need to do to cut that away, cut it away. Jesus said, if it's your arm, cut off your arm. If it's your eye, put out your eye. If it's your treasure, give away your treasure. Yes, these are extremes. He's not saying do physical harm to yourself. But what he is saying is let go of anything that has a hold of you in order to lay hold of me who has a claim on you. Let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Do you realize that the, the what of the one thing is a finish line? What is the one thing that we're pressing for? It's a finish line. It's a mark in the Greek word. But the what is a who, and the who is a him. Christ Jesus is himself the finish line. Christ Jesus is himself the reward. The one thing is him. He is the one thing. And these one things that we've studied are to fix our focus on him so that we can keep on running. Even if we get put in prison, even if we get abused and rejected. Do you know that that word, diaco, that I mentioned, that is the root of deacon and servant, it means runner. It refers to running or chasing something. When it's first used in the New Testament, it's used by Jesus to describe persecution. When people chase after you. Paul's life began as one who ran after the Christians to put them to death. Paul uses the very word that describes the persecution that he himself once, to, once was involved in. In fact, when Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you Dioko? Why are you running after me with this persecution? Paul has moved from running after Christians to kill them to running after Christ for life. And he uses the same word to describe the same intensity. Whereas once I was fixed on death, now I have fixed myself on life. On Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You see, Jesus had a finish line of his own. Amen. And the finish line was a mark. It was a cross, a tree of death, that he turned through his own death and shedding of blood into a tree of life. But why? Just to conquer death? No, to lay hold of a prize. And the prize is you. Amen. He did it for you. You are his glory. Now he wants to glorify you with his glory and the only way that we can receive that is to make him our glory. Do you see what a marriage it is? He who gave himself up for us, 
did it so that we would be his. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The one thing is essentially to keep on keeping on. Let us not become weary in doing good. PCF, this message was intended by the Lord for this season. A season of harvest, a season of thanksgiving, and in a year of fruitfulness, Galatians 6, 9 says, you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. The temptation to give up is great. The weariness of the race is real. The burdens of sin are dangerous. But the victory is secured in the Lord. You don't even have to achieve it. You just have to believe it and keep on focusing on Christ. Run the race God has set for us, keeping our focus on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Then we will know and love God in him. We will have our treasure in him. We will be focused first and always on him. We will be empowered to declare and do his works. And we will press ahead and win the race. Win the victory. And be more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's praise the Lord. Lord, you are the one thing that we want. And the one thing that you ask of us is to trust you. But that one thing manifests in many ways. One is to recognize that we were running away from you. And as your people, maybe there have been times where we've run away. Run away from persecution. Run away from hardship. Run away from what you were calling us to. If that's the case, Lord, today we repent. We lay down that attitude and ask that you would pick us up to the high call of your purpose for us. Lord, for any within the sound of my voice or the reach of these words who haven't yet given themselves to you, I pray that like Daphne today in the story of old, Lord, they would receive the gift of life from you. That their roots would go down deep into you, the living vine. That their branches would blossom with the fruit of your spirit. Friend, if that's you and you haven't You haven't given yourself to the Lord. This is not some religious ritual. It's a reality. It's you saying, I want to live and I want to know you and I want to serve you and I give myself to you. I confess I'm a sinner. I repent of those sins, but I cannot cleanse myself of them or even stop them unless you give me the power. So I give myself to you and acknowledge your authority. And I ask that you would cleanse me, deliver me, and lead me into all righteousness. If there's sickness, I pray you'd heal me. If there's bondage, I pray that you would free me. If there's confusion, I pray that you would teach me. I dedicate myself to your word, to studying it and reading it, to prayer, to finding a place of the community of Christ near me where I will regularly give and regularly serve and regularly worship. Make that commitment now and the Lord honors it and says, I will give you the crown of life. Even today, I place upon your head life. Thank you, Lord. We praise your name. Amen.